0: Uh, 1960, and 60 65 years ago somewhere in that vicinity the event took place and whether one believes in it or, or doesn't believe in it we all have to recognize that the event was was so stupendous whatever it was and so unusual that all historians uh, measure history uh, before and after that particular event And if you go back and read from any historical source and they are identifying themselves relative to time, they'll always somewhere get into the realm of identifying the event as either having taken place before the time of Christ or after Christ. Uh, In the world that we live in today, a population of somewhere in the vicinity of 5 billion people. And of those 5 billion people, about 1,800,000,000 of them claim some degree of discipleship to Jesus. Notice I said some degree of discipleship to Jesus. In other words, almost 40% of the population of the world claims at least some degree of belief and discipleship uh, to Jesus of Nazareth. The closest thing that we could even compare to it would, interesting enough, be the Muslim religion. Uh, There are some 800 million people, or almost half, not quite, almost half as many people, uh, making some claim to believe in Muhammad as a prophet and in that system of religion. There's many differences between the two. And by the way, there's nothing else even close other than the Muslim religion. There's many differences between the two. Number one is the number itself, uh, with Christianity numbering over twice, the, the Muslim religion. Then there's something different in the the very nature of those who profess Christianity and those who profess the Muslim religion. In many of the Muslim countries, in fact in those countries where the religion is is most dominant, there is no other choice. Uh, Christianity is not given an open and honest hearing. It's even outlawed. There is no country uh, where Christianity is the religion... And individuals are forced into that religion, and other religions are condemned. There is no country, to my knowledge, uh, in the world of that nature today. In other words, that when you look at those uh, professing uh, some degree of discipleship in Jesus, it's it's on the basis of free choice wherever you find them. Uh, That's just simply not so among those who make the profession in the Muslim religion. And so the very fact it stands there, at least to my mind, just staggers my brain when i can think that of five billion people in the world almost 40 percent of them of their free choice have made the decision for some degree of discipleship relative to this individual and that historians measure time before and after this individual you know i was going to i think i was going to i forgot to bring it up here get your songbook out just a minute and I'm going to look at one of the songs that we sang before the lesson. This is on uh, number 616. number 6,16. Look at the song, because there is a truth there, and it's something in between uh, these two stanzas that we want to look at in our discussion this morning. All right, I'm going to read the first four stanzas, and then we'll drop down uh, to the bottom. We saw thee not when thou didst come to this poor world of sin and death, nor yet beheld thy cottage home in thy despised Nazareth. We saw thee not when lifted high amid that wild and savage crew, nor heard we that imploring cry, forgive, they know not what they do. We gaze not in the open tomb where once thy mangled body lie, nor saw thee in the upper room, nor met thee on the open way. We walk not with the chosen few who saw thee from the earth of sin, who raised to heaven their wandering view, then lo, to earth all prostrate then. But, despite the fact we saw and firsthand experienced none of this, But we believe thy footsteps trod its streets and plains, thou Son of God. We believe the deed was done that shook the earth and veiled the sun. We believe that angels said, why seek the living with the dead? And we believe that human eyes beheld that journey to the skies. And the question we raise is it's a truth that we all acknowledge that no one of us witnessed the events purported. No one of us knows anyone else who witnessed the events. And yet we gather here as those who believe the events. And then the question you ask yourself within your own heart, why do you believe those events? Do we believe the events because they meet an emotional need? Do we believe the events because that uh, we look at ourselves and, and we know we're going to die? And as drowning people, grasping for a straw, this is the only thing that's offered to us. In other words, there, there is no claim uh, concerning any other individual of any significance whatsoever of having died and come forth from the grave and offered the same opportunity to those that would follow him. Do we grasp in that way? Do we believe because we have been raised in a culture where most of the people around us believe, or we've been raised in a family that believed these events? I suggest to you that of these 1 billion, 800 million souls professing some degree of belief in Jesus much of that belief would fall into that category. Brought up in a culture where family members believed it sounds good, it it meets a need, we know we're going to die, it's at least something to, to grasp at. And so for these various reasons, and maybe others, there is an element of belief there. But I would suggest to you that if if all this one asked for in our lives was coming to service two times on Sunday, and a Bible study sometime in midweek, and not being too terribly bad in between those times, that kind of evidence would probably motivate me to that kind of action. But that kind of evidence, just the fact that others believed, just the fact it met an emotional need, just the fact that it was at least some hope in a dying body, would not motivate me to the extent of sacrificing my life, making the teaching of that man number one in my life, making it of such a nature that I lived every day of my life with the attitude of, what would he do relative to the decisions in uh, this particular area? What would be his decision uh, in handling this problem? It would not motivate me to dig in my pocket and to support the proclamation of of that information uh, to individuals I didn't know it may very well motivate me to dig in my pocket, to help build an attractive building that I was going to get to use, or to build a gymnasium, or to do anything that would be enjoyable to me personally and my family. But it wouldn't motivate me to do the other. By the very fruits of what I see in Christianity, I cannot keep from believing that most of what is called belief in Jesus comes with that kind of evidence mentioned, because in the fruits I see more of some of these things I talked about than of what I hear him calling for from the pages of this book, and that is a loss of life. A denial of self, a picking up of the cross, a willingness to sacrifice yourself even to the point of death itself, and even with the statement that denial of him in any sense would result in denial of ourself. I believe it's very important to do in, for yourself and in a very concrete way something that we'll just introduce in a very shadow way in a few moments that we have this morning and that is to become extremely serious and examine the evidence for the death the burial and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and make up your mind once and for all whether it was the greatest hoax that ever hit this world, or it is in fact a true fact of history. If it is a true fact of history, then I believe that we do it a disservice and our self a disservice in not treating it as a true fact of history and meeting all the demands that are implied in that event. Just read... Got recently a new book out in the area of Christian evidences. This one's called The Best of Josh, A Ready Defense of the Gospel. What I'd like to read uh, is just a few statements, not of some of the evidences of the event itself. In fact, in the few moments that we've got, uh, you know, about 15-20 minutes left, that there's no way uh, the evidence would be very, have to be very shallow and very little of it if we was going to examine it in that amount of time. So I thought it might be more impressive and and since the time is so limited, and since there's so much to examine, to just read you some statements from outstanding historians and outstanding lawyers who have examined that evidence and the observation that they have made. Professor Thomas Arnold, uh, 14 years headmaster of rugby, author of a three-volume History of Rome and holder of the chair of Modern History at Oxford, well acquainted with all, with the value of evidence, makes this statement. And so here's a professor, uh, Oxford University in England. I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer, than the great sign which God has given us that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Brooke Foss-Westcott, another English scholar, said, Taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. Professor of ancient history, Dr. Paul Mayer, at Western Michigan University, concludes, If all the evidence is weighed carefully and fairly, It is indeed justifiable, according to the canons of historical research, to conclude that the tomb in which Jesus was buried was actually empty on the morning of the first Easter, and no shred of evidence has yet been discovered in literary sources or archaeology that would disprove this statement. Lord Caldecott, Chief Justice of England, writes, His resurrection has led me, as often as I have tried to examine the evidence, to believe it as a fact beyond dispute. Dr. Simon Greenleaf, outstanding lawyer, writer of a treatise on the law of evidence, Greenleaf examined the value of historical evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ to ascertain the truth. He applied the principles contained in his three-volume treatise on evidence, His findings were recorded in his book, an examination of the testimony of the four evangelists by the rules of evidence administered in the courts of justice. Greenleaf came to the conclusion that according to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, there is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. Dr. Frank Morrison, a lawyer, brought up in a rationalistic environment, had come to the opinion that the resurrection was nothing but a fairy tale, a happy ending which spoiled the matchless story of Jesus. He felt that he owed it to himself and to others to write a book that would present the truth about Jesus and dispel the myth of the resurrection. From studying the facts, however, he came to a different conclusion. The sheer weight of the evidence compelled him to conclude that Jesus actually did rise from the dead. Morrison wrote his book, but not the one he had planned. It's titled, Who Moved the Stone? The first chapter, very significantly, is called, The Book That Refused to be Written. C.S. Lewis, literary scholar, Cambridge University, former atheist, when writing about his conversion to Christianity, indicated that he had believed Christians to be wrong. The last thing Lewis wanted was to embrace Christianity. However, early in 1926, the hardest-boiled of all atheists I ever knew sat in my room on the other side of the fire and remarked that the evidence for the historicity of the Gospels was really surprisingly good. Rum thing, he went on. All that stuff of Fraser's about a dying God, rum fang. It almost looks as if it really happened to understand the shattering impact of it you would need to know the man who has certainly never since shown any interest in christianity after evaluating the basis and evidence for christianity lewis concluded that in other religions there was no such historical claim as in christianity his knowledge of literature forced him to treat the gospel record as a trustworthy account I was by now too experienced in literary criticism to regard the Gospels as myth, Lewis said. Finally, contrary to his strong stand against Christianity, Professor Lewis had to make an intelligent decision. You must picture me alone in my room, night after night, feeling, whenever my mind lifted even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I had so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had at last come upon me. In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and admitted that God was God, and knelt and prayed, and perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. Irvin Linton, member of the Supreme Court of the United States in the 1940s, author of a book, A Lawyer Examines the Bible, page 50 of all the events that I've ever examined in history, None so substantiated as the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You know, as you read that, and and I could continue to read on, and you say, "How could this be?" At least I do, and then I think that that here are all these historical scholars, uh, here are lawyers, here are atheists. C.S. Lewis is one. I could quote others who examine the evidence and not only came to believe it but they made extremely strong statements they said of all of the events to happen in history none so substantiated as this event and you say if if the evidence is so strong so absolutely overwhelming what is happening in our society why is unbelief on the rise and belief on the demise How has jesus and christianity and god been outlawed from our public school system how is it that you can read the the textbooks uh, the history the social studies books the science books in in our school system in this land where over seventy percent profess discipleship in jesus and never even be aware of the fact that christianity is significant at all in our society. How is it that you could watch the TV and never once in any program that you watch see a family going to church to worship God? See a couple making decisions about their life or about their children based on the teaching of this man. See decisions about morality based on the teaching of this book despite the fact that we live in a country where the Constitution was primarily framed on the principles of the teaching of the man of Galilee. How come? That's interesting. Are there historians who reject him? Are there scientists? Are there lawyers that reject him? If the evidence is so overwhelming, why do so many reject? And I think this is a problem for the minds of many. On the one hand, they hear statements like this. And on the other hand, there are so many that reject. And they say, well, how could it be that strong? And so many reject. I don't know. How can the evidence for the damage of tobacco to the human body be so strong? And so many people make the decision to smoke. How can the the evidence of the, the damage of alcohol in our society and to our body be so strong and overwhelming? And so many people make the decision to use it. How can the evidence of drugs that they are so damaging to our mind and to our body and to our society be so strong? And so many people make the decision to use it. How can young ladies be brought up in a society and they see so many single mothers suffering so many scars in their personal life as a result of having a baby without a husband. They see their poverty situation. They see the shame. They, they see all the hardship. They, they see what happens to the child. How can they see this? And make a decision to do exactly the same thing. Suffice it to say that human beings do not always act in keeping with the evidence. Human beings do not even always act in keeping with that which they believe. Suffice it to say also that many times the evidence can be overwhelming about something and and yet individuals themselves unaware of the evidence. You know, it's interesting in looking at Christianity back through the years and as it relates to evidence. If you were to visit during the course of the year various churches of the Christian faith in our society in each one you visit you would write down the sermon title or what was talked about and you set in the classrooms. I honestly believe that you would find that not even a fraction of the time spent studying Our sermons being proclaimed would be spent dealing with the evidences for the truthfulness of the very book the individuals claim to believe. And yet it's interesting here because in its inception, as Christianity had its birth almost 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem, in the very city where they crucified Jesus, 3,000 people obeyed 50 days after his crucifixion, And the entire sermon centered around the evidences for his resurrection. And in the historical record that we have in the New Testament of the movement of the early church as the apostles took this message recorded in the book of Acts, as you delve into the parts of the individual sermons that are proclaimed and follow the apostles and see the thousands upon thousands of people are converted you have to be struck by the fact that without exception the message was always presented from the standpoint of offering the evidence to prove the record itself. You simply do not find the sermon in the book of Acts asserting that Jesus is the Christ and telling people to just give their heart to Jesus or let Jesus come into your heart if or if you're really sincere the holy spirit will come in you or something of of like statement you simply don't find those statements in the book of acts nor do you find preachers standing up in the book of acts and say well to become a christian you need to believe repent confess and be baptized you don't find that either what you find is a constant debating and arguing and presenting of the evidences for the resurrection of Jesus, some persuaded, some reject, the reason for rejections given, some persuaded at an entire change of life, and they in turn take that message to others. When we move from the first century into the second century, we run into people like Justin Martyr, And in his writings and his speeches that are recorded, they ooze with evidences for his belief in Jesus. Although not a Jew, he repeatedly quotes Old Testament prophecies. He argues with his pagans about, he's fascinated about Psalms 22 and quotes it. He's fascinated about Isaiah 53 and quotes it. He's fascinated by all the arguments and continually presents it to his pagan friends. We find Christians writing and and arguing about the darkness that came over the land for that three-hour period in the middle of the day, and pointing out that it could not have been just a coincidence, and that it was the time of the full moon that there was no eclipse or anything of that nature that took place, and they're using this as evidence for what they purport to believe. And so the church grew and converted by the thousands and ate up the Roman Empire, because all of its adherents, of all its adherents, none of them were second-generation Christians who had Christian mamas and daddies, which would seem to be the ultimate. These people were former Jews and former pagans, former idolatrous people. And they ate up the Roman Empire with the Christian religion because their conversion was not based on mama and daddy. It wasn't based on the fact that so many in the society believed it. It wasn't based on the fact it just seemed to be true because it seemed to be false. It seemed to be foolishness. It was outlandish. It was rejected by the majority of the people. But they were Christians because they were absolutely 100% convinced by the evidence that there was no explanation for that empty tomb outside of Jerusalem that had been so meticulously sealed where the body had been placed, where everybody was so positive that he was dead, where a guard was put on the tomb, and three days later it's empty, and these scared cowardly disciples of his who had fled in unbelief at his crucifixion, are now so absolutely bold and aggressive and assured and argumentative and debative and so full of sophisticated reasoning, not to mention the miraculous tied in with it, that they're literally turning the world upside down. And so Christianity begins to eat up the Roman world. And then it begins to philosophically eat up the world. And when it came to this country, from Europe, it took precedence in this country. What happened? After several generations, we reach a point where believers have parents who were believers, who in turn had parents who were believers. And so we find people brought up in an environment and in situation where most of the people around them believe, and their parents believe. And there was not that compelling need on their part to challenge and to examine and to question and to have proven. And the end result of several generations of this is that we wind up and we have it all over this country of individuals that have a faith in their heart But they're not very good at sharing this faith with others that don't have it. Because the truth is, their faith is based on their own presuppositions, their own experiences, their own family. And when you carry that out into a world like the United States has become, of scientific reasoning, where individuals are taught to examine everything, to believe nothing except it can be proven, to qualify all the evidences. It just simply doesn't stack up to educated minds. Now, many of the mass will still buy into it. But that kind of reasoning doesn't stack up, and it is the educated minds that write our textbooks and edit our newspapers and write our TV programs. And I suggest to you that when we point the finger at the ungodliness that comes off the tube, and the lack of mention of Christianity in our textbooks and all of these works of educated people the real culprit may be the very individuals who claim to believe that so strong and who seem so frustrated because these people refuse to believe it Based on our assertion. The same evidence that converted Justin Smarter, C.S. Lewis, John Clayton, and a host of infidels and atheists and agnostics and Jews and pagans and idolatrous people from the first century all the way through will still today convert and turn intelligent, educated minds. And the only way you will ever see a change in the TV programs, and the only way you will see a change in the type of government that we have, and a change in the type of editors of our newspaper, and a change in the writers of our textbooks, is not by trying to legislate what you believe in to enforce it on these people. The change will take place to the degree that more of them are convinced intellectually by the evidence that the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is not just wishful thinking of people that are are scared of death and are grabbing at straws. It's not just something that meets an emotional need. It is a literal, documented, historical fact that will stand any examination that intelligent human beings created in the image of God can give it. You and I need to take the time to acquaint ourselves with the evidence in such a way that we don't just have it intuitively within us but that we have the ability to articulate it and give it to others and then once we have it in our minds to the extent that we can articulate it and give it to others god help us god help us and i wished i had the ability to say whatever it takes and obviously don't god help us to realize that it's more important than ball games, it's more important than having fun, it's more important than movies, it's more important than having the precise car, the precise house we want, it's more important than a college education. It is absolutely the most important event of this world. We all are dying. And everybody out there dying, we, the, the prayer list that was given about, for example, Barbara's sister, Treva, has a brain tumor and is, is dying, and, and others there uh, that have heart problems. We all have a terminal disease. They just know for sure they may only have a few days. I don't know what car is waiting to run over me out there, or what drunk is, is waiting to knock me off. I do know for sure when I look at these gray hairs and these baggy eyes and when I try to get out there and play basketball with somebody like Chuck and he runs all over me, that this old body is dying. Just plain old dying. And it's crazy to get out lost in all of these freaky things out here to laugh and holler. I mean, there's a place for that. But to the extent that we, that becomes our life, and we forget about it. the only thing that really matters, the only thing that can give us eternal life. And when you think of your sons and your daughters and your brothers and your sisters and your wives and their Uh, your uncles and your husbands, etc. and if you love them, and when you get together with them, when you're having fun with them, when you're talking with them, the bottom line is they're dying. And outside of that one event, there is no hope for them, and there is no amount of money, there's no gift, there's no piece of fun, there's nothing that you can ever give them or do for them, no counseling, no advice that could do for them what this information can do. Only evidence can take a mind of doubt and cause it to intellectually be convinced that something is true. Once that mind is convinced, then the conscience and the emotion and all those other qualities of will will take their place to bear on the information among those who sincerely and honestly want to do right before God. Let's examine ourselves as we think of this great event that we celebrate today. It was about this time of year, from the historical reckoning, that they executed the man from Galilee, and an empty tomb was left behind. And it stands more important today than anything that's happening or has happened since. And if I have any hope at all beyond the grave, it lies in that event. Thank God for the prophecies written hundreds of years before the event. Thank God for a man like Paul who knew every sophisticated argument against the event and and was converted and spent his life preaching it. Thank God for those apostles who witnessed it and came out of their cowardliness and, and were so completely changed that they were willing to go to their death in the proclamation of what they knew they had seen with their own eyes. Thank God for all of the plurality and multiplicity of evidences that allow us to examine that event and know without any doubt in our mind that you can have remission of sins and eternal life in the Son of God. And then let us thank God and give praise and song and live our lives and be concerned and not be so distracted by the things of this life that we lose sight of the most important event that's ever happened in human history let's conclude our study this morning if if you're in the audience as one that is not a christian god loves you jesus died for you god raised him from the dead he supported that resurrection with with every imaginable form of evidence i started to carry up all the books written right in the last few years on evidences and decided not to by outstanding scholars with legal backgrounds, and the book you hold, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, the ability you have mentally to compare the accounts and the prophecies and all. If you haven't done it, do it for yourself and all those that you have contact with. If you've already done it, examine yourself in light of that information. If you're not a Christian, we encourage you to make the decision to put your trust in him, repent of your sins, and be immersed into him for the forgiveness of your sins. We extend the opportunity as together we stand and sing.